Good. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining. Um, I hope everything is working well over here with the recording. Shem will help us figure this out. I'm having so much complications with getting this stuff, getting these cameras set. I might just have to get the whole system rewired over here. Okay, we'll have to figure it out. Before that, tonight's class was dedicated by Mrs. Leia Reese. This is in honor of a grandmother's yard site. Fega Basra Moshe, that was yesterday on Zion Cheshvan. May her neshama have a great, 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 great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she send a lot of blessing to you, to your entire mishpacha, for all that you need and all that you want in the material and in the spiritual health Parnasa, and most of all, nachas from the kids. Only, only good. Thank you so much. Okay, so this week is Parsha Slech Lecha. It's an exciting Parsha. It's an awesome Parsha. We're living in awesome times. So we have to learn the Torah with great joy, and then Hashem helps, and we find all kinds of beautiful and amazing light. Especially now, the Torah is already giving us the future light, the light of Mashiach. It's all coming through the Torah. Torah Chadashim, Eiti Tate say a new Torah is going to emerge. Let's hope that uh, this class goes well with Hashem's help. I'm, I'm excited about uh, events that are happening in the world, and I think they're very deeply connected to this week's parsha. This year, we found um, right before the year began, the year started. I know we're living in difficult times. We're not going to focus on the difficulty and on the darkness. We're going to focus on the great emerging light, the powerful, the powerful energies that are now manifesting in the world that are really the pneumious, the inner dimension of all this darkness and all this chaos. Uh, it's going to be very bright. It's going to be very bright very soon, and it's already turning bright in many areas. So um, uh, on Friday, there was an announcement that uh, Sudan is making peace with Israel. They're going to recognize Israel. Sudan, now, obviously Sudan is not one of the great uh, influencers and one of the great countries, whether in wealth, whether in the military might or whatever. Uh, one might not pay that much attention to Sudan, what Sudan does, and how important that is that Israel is opening up a uh, relationship with Sudan. But I think it is extraordinarily significant First of all, the fact that it's the third country that is part of this new peace initiative called the Abraham Accords. I'm not exactly sure if Sudan is part of what they call the Abraham Accord, but it's in continuation to what was initiated a few weeks ago under the name of Abraham Accords. Um, it's super, super significant and super meaningful and to each and every one of us. Uh, to every single Jew in a very deep way, and particularly connected to this week, the parsha of Avram Avinu. Um, number one, it's that it's number that it's number one. The first idea is that it's number three, and in general, we know that you know you want to know if something is real, you have to wait for it to reoccur three times. And that's the way it is in halacha. Torah decides that you can only consider something as a as a reality, if it if it if it if it reoccurs, if something happens once, you say it's a it's a glitch, 
It's a mistake. It's, a, it's an occurrence, but it's not necessarily a reality. The, the way Chazal see it is bitlas pa'amim have a chazaka. Once something is repeated three times, it's a chazaka. It's established. So it is in many halachas. We're familiar with it regarding the laws of um, animal gorings. Uh, an animal becomes considered a goring ox after three times. A woman establishes a set um, a set um, um, expectation for the date that uh, she's expecting to see her period is also related to if, it's, if it happens three times, it's called the vest kavua. And those are just two things that are coming to mind, but there are so many other things in which we say that once something is established three times, it is established already to be considered a chazaka. So in this case, we see a, a phenomenon of a nations recognizing Israel, and the chiddush over here is the novelty over here is that it's not in exchange for a land. It's not at the price of, I'm just going to move this a second. It is not at the price of handing over land. So it's called peace for peace. That's the novelty. That has not happened yet. Any country up till now that had any dealings with Israel made peace, which were Egypt and Jordan, was based on a understanding of some kind of an exchange of territory. Uh, in this, I'm not sure in Jordan what exactly the exchange of territory was, but at least in Egypt, definitely it was an exchange of massive strategic land of the Sinai and so on and so forth, which one can celebrate and say it was good. We haven't had any wars with Egypt, but uh, according to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it was a disaster of disasters. In other words, Egypt would have come around without that, and that was completely unnecessary and a sign of deep weakness for Israel to relinquish land that is strategic and important, and it could have been um, very, very, very... Um, significant for the Jewish people and the land of Israel had we held on to it both from a military perspective for safety of the people in Israel and also for um, its natural resources. So uh, that was a, a, a very not good thing. Um, the, the, this time the, the peace that is being forged between Israel and other countries is based on a certain respect. But I think what's the most important element is that it is called the Abraham Accords. The fact that it's called the Abraham Accords, which obviously we understand it's the families of Abraham that are coming together. It's Avram, Avram's children, Yishmael and, and, uh, and uh, Yitzchak, the Jewish people, the descendants of Isaac, of Yitzchak, the Arabs, the descendants of Yishmael. They're coming together and forging a peace of a, a deal is attributed to Abraham. It's a brotherly kind of a feeling that there is, a sense of, you know, we're, we're after all, we're cousins. We come from, our fathers are, 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 are connected. But the depth of it is as follows. The narrative that has been, um, uh, been kind of uh, perpetuated uh, across the world, and particularly in the Middle East, for the last, I don't know, uh, I guess since the uh, beginning of, a, of, of since 48, and definitely, definitely from 67, after the Arabs have realized, or definitely after the Yom Kippur War, after they realize that there is no way they're going to defeat Israel militarily, their other um, method was propaganda. And, and, and in order to convince the world view, that's what they were, they were fighting the war on, world view, on, on, on the minds of the world. They wanted to create and bring about that humanity should force Israel on the world stage on the uh, what you call on on the on the uh, on the world court, 
of, of to be condemned as the aggressor, as the oppressor, as an, an apartheid state, as people that are, are, are illegitimate. And it's all based on that this land, this Palestinian land, it's not Jewish land. Um, by the naming of this accord, the Abraham Accord, it completely um, blows up this whole entire narrative. And if you're realizing, if Arab states, and now we have already three Muslim states, if others are to follow, and which it seems like the president said that there seems that there are another five countries that are already lining up to join in this peace. So we're talking already about a change of heart and a change of mind of hundreds of millions of people in the Middle East. Now, these are the people that are the most connected, being that they're Muslim. And if they themselves are rejecting the Palestinian narrative and their stories, that the Jews are foreigners, the Jews are Europeans, who came to the land of, in the Middle East, they came to the natives and chased the natives away, and Jews have no connection to that land. That's what they tried doing. That's what the World Heritage Foundation tried to do in the UN and so on and so forth. By that being rejected, and being called the Abraham Accords, there is a recognition that the Jewish people have a connection to that land going all the way back to Abraham. And in a sense, the only connection that Arabs have to that land perhaps is also in the fact that they are the descendants of Abraham and that's what tries to give them some kind of a legitimacy of a connection to the land. But at least at this moment, the Jews are not foreigners and it completely blows a hole in this entire thing. Once you're already recognizing Abraham, then you take a look in this week's parsha, and you see that God promises the land to your children, and to which children did God give it to? He gave it to his son, his Yitzchak. Shem says clearly, I've heard about Yishmael, he will also be a great nation, but uh, he has his own, his, own, his own empire, not the land of Israel. So um, the, the acknowledgement of this is huge, huge, huge. I mean, <laughs> It's like, okay, so they've signed a couple of papers. It's, it's, it's history. It's, it's a complete transformation. It's a complete uh, um, um, 180 turnaround. It's a, it's a massive tshuva that's happening. And when you take Sudan, that, you know, Bahrain and Emirates, on the one hand, you might say they're more, uh, they're Arab. I'm not sure the Sudanese are Arab. I don't know exactly their thing. Maybe they're Muslim. I don't think they're Arab. But the thing about the Sudanese is there that they were listed till now, but the other two countries were a more of a stable countries that were recognized as, as uh, you know, a nation amongst all the other nations. But Sudan was considered criminal till now. They are a state, they're in the State Department's list of a state that sponsors terror. They gave safe haven to bin Laden for so many, for, for, for many years. And, and, and actually part of this um, peace treaty and that was done, in other words, that shows that there is sincerity there. Now, where, why they're coming to it, obviously, it's because they realize that, they, that they're falling apart, that they will not, you know, that they're being isolated from all the nations and being, um, being um, an outcast, being considered a terrorist nation is not, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, doing well for them. In other words, these forces of evil, these forces that, which, which are, from, that up till now were allowed to, to, to be very strong and to have access to cash and to all kinds of things are now being choked. And that's why these terrorist nations are falling apart. And in order for them to survive, they need to change course. And that's 
unbelievable. That's a mass, that's amazing change. The fact that a terrorist nation, so again, as part of the deal was that they must pay, I think, 350 or 360 million dollars they must deliver and pay to compensate for the people they murdered. Okay? So they have to pay a price. And that also shows on the sincerity of it. It's not like, you know, okay, we're giving you peace. Please make peace with us. We'll take any peace. They're paying. They're paying. An, they're buying this peace. It's costing. Instead of making Israel, is <laughs> the story, instead of making Israel pay a price, they're paying the price. They're going to be paying to those Americans that were killed in, I think it was, different embassies that were bombed when Osama bin Laden was, had protection in Sudan. Sudan has to pay. They actually went and borrowed the money. Either they borrowed or they will borrow the money to pay it, and they're not going off the, spon- the, 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 the list of state sponsorship until they wired the money. That's what I read. Again, you can verify the facts. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I read. If it's true what I read, uh, that, that's, that, that, that's really amazing. So what's so amazing about it? What's amazing about it is what we're seeing that a real, real, a country that represents wickedness till now is being flipped over. And that's Moshiach. Moshiach is when all wicked will become righteous. When there will be a transformation. Moshiach is coming to bring the entire world to do tshuva, not just the Jewish people. The nations of the world. It's one of the things it says about Moshiach. He's going to be in the world. He's going to correct humanity. He's going to fix the world. He's going to transform the worst of the nations. It's interesting on a video that I did on Friday, short little video, my daily, uh, daily, I have to get back to doing them daily. I apologize to all those who listen and don't get them daily. I have to get just, sometimes you fall out of something and you just have to like get back into the routine. I, I, I need to get back, um, hopefully by me saying, admitting to this publicly that I'm just a little, you know, it's a flagon and I'm not focusing on it. So by, 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 by putting it out there that I hope and I beg the Eberstadt to help me do it and I'll do it and get, throw me the inspiration every day. I really want to get back to the daily video. So, because for a long time I was doing them every day and then just recently it got a little bit, um, a, little, a little lax on that. In any case, back to what we're saying is that, um, so on that video I, I mentioned an interesting thing on Friday that uh, it, it, it happened on Parshas Noach. And one of the things that it says about Noach's teva about the Ark of Noach, is that Noach's teva was a had was the 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 um, the, um, the first um, trial on on the world of Mashiach. The first, um, you say it? Uh, it was a a preview of the Mashiach world. Because in the Teva we had all the very all the animals, all the beasts were in the ark. So many different beasts, animals, and animals that are naturally predatory one to each other, and yet these animals lived in peace and in harmony for an entire year in such a small little space. So even if you would have a good zoo system, it wouldn't be possible. The fact that the animals were able to coexist one with each other, it says, because in the Teva there was a the the the, the peace of the future was experienced in the Teva. It says in the Pasuk in Yeshaya, it says, Lamar Bahamisra Ulishalim Ain Kates. It's talking about the government of Mashiach in, in Perektes in Yeshaya and Isaiah. It says, Lamar Bahamisra to the increased Misra, to the increased governorship, Ulishalim Ain Kates, and to infinite peace. So what is it referring to? It's, uh, according to um, many Mepharshim, it's referring to the kingdom of Mashiach either Chizkiyahu HaMelech back then, but primarily the kingdom of Mashiach, that during his time, the governorship of holiness, 
the godly kingdom will increase without an end. That means Mashiach's kingdom will span the entire universe and even beyond. It will span the sum totality of all of existence because he's not a king on his own behalf. He's a king executing God's kingship in the world. But it will be in a manner where Lashalimain Kates there will be infinite peace. That means his kingdom will not tolerate any violence. As it says in, again in, in Isaiah, Yeshaya, a little later, it says that in the days of Mashiach, there will not be any evil. No one will perpetrate any evil. There won't be any violence. My entire holy mountain. That means not just in the mount, mountain of, of Hashem, which is in the land, in, on Temple Mount and on Yerushalayim, but in, in, on Jerusalem, but it means the whole world. The whole world will be a holy mountain to God. As the verse also says, how it goes through the whole list of how the animals will live together, the wolf and the sheep will lie together, uh, and, 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 a, and a leopard with a, with a young kid goat, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a lion with a, will, will graze together with a cow, together, right? Now the cow runs when the lion is around, or whatever, or better run, I can't outrun a lion, but it's no good. It's a bloody situation, it's a bloody scene when a, when a lion gets a hold of a cow. But then it will be peace and harmony, and even children will play together with at the holes of a snake. So these are um, the nevuas that say regarding Mashiach. Now Rambam, interesting. Rambam is insisting in his last chapter of, of Laws of Kings, Rambam insists that this is not necessarily going to be a change of the nature of the world. It's not that the science will change of the animals. Maybe, by the way, Rambam in, in his other svarim says, this that I say in Mishnah Torah, this that I said in my book, that it's for sure only a mushal, a metaphor, it's not definitely, it doesn't have to be that it's going to be in the reality. It could be, he says. It could be that, it will ch- that actually there will be a change in the nature of the world, he says. But you're not required to say so. You can say that nature will stay nature, the world will stay what the, the way the world is. However, what then does this mean, that animals will coexist with each other? This is referring to the, future, the, 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 the manner in which nations are going to live with each other and with the Jewish people. And the Ramam says these words, they will sit, the wicked of the nations, will sit in peace with Israel. They will be, and the Jews will sit securely with them. Hear these words. The Jewish people will, they'll sit securely. Now what more secure sitting can you have when they're willing to recognize you and make a, a declaration and as I said, we said before, they're buying it. They're paying money for that to happen. And they're going to recognize Israel and, not gonna, and, and remove them from their harm's way. Of, until then, it was, a, it was a breeding ground, Sudan, for terrorists. And that's going to stop. They're going to, obviously, we're dealing with just the beginning of things. Uh, you know, the more Mashiach is going to become revealed in the world, and hopefully, let, let us have the full revelation, not in a second from now, but now. Let it be as I'm speaking. As the more Mashiach will finally be revealed, obviously this will increase everything a billionfold. But the point over here is to see the things happening before you have the full revelation. To see already Mashiach all over. As the Lubavitch Rebbe said, Mashiach is here already uh, 30, 20, uh, 30, uh, 29 years ago, he said. He's already sitting by the table. We're already sitting with the Shaira Bar, with the food of Mashiach and the Leviathan and the great fish. We have to open our eyes. That means, what is the Rebbe saying? That means that these things are already operating in the world. They're just very subtle. 
And the more we learn about Mashiach, the more we train our eyes to be able to see the subtleties. Now it's stopping to be so subtle, it's becoming more and more and more pronounced for those who want to look and for those who want to see it. This is an amazing thing that, the, that, that a terrorist country has completely turned around. What is it? The tiger or the lion has lost its stripes. The tiger or the leopard has lost its stripes. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. How, how, how is this possible? This is nothing other than the Giyula. This is this, these are the, and, and, and this is the, for those who, 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 are, who, who, who learned Hasidus understand that the whole beauty of the Geula is that it comes from within the natural process. It's not some meddling from above because then, then this whole world failed. If God has to, if God has to save the world from doomsday, is a sign that the world failed. The entire enterprise of creation was an, was 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 a was a was a horrible failure. God has to rescue it, and that's not and that's not what's going to happen. The mankind is going to mature. Man is going to grow. There's going to be a certain, and that's what we're seeing. And even though it's unbelievable, because we don't understand how that's happening. So here you have already Bahrain, the Emirates, and Sudan turning around, Abraham Accords. So this is really stunning. Now, um, before we connect it to this week's parsha, which it is, because the giving of the land of Israel to the Jewish people is parshas, is this week's parsha, parshas, um, parsha lachlacha. So again, but see the connection to last week. This particular idea that there is peace in the world, this magical peace, this unbelievable coexistence that there is in the world, um, and the coexistence means between enemies. And we know that the, the, the Arab world was a, was a very deep force of hatred towards the Jewish people for all of history. And you're talking about a, a major divide, a major, a major animosity and hatred, anti-Semitism. This has been, uh, you know, Rabbeinu Bachaya writes, in Pashas Nitzavim, I mentioned in the other class, I think, Rabbeinu Bachaya writes that it says in, 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 there in, the, in Pashas Nitzavim, in Deuteronomy, it says that God says, I will bring these curses on your foes and on your enemies. Oivecha v'sainacha. So he says the word oivecha, which I think translated as a foe, sainacha would mean your enemy. He says oivecha is much stronger than sainacha. It's a far deeper hatred. And he says that it's referring to the, the, the children of Esav and the children of Yishmael. And he says, Yishmael is called Oivecha. And Esav is called Sonecha. And he says, Ovecha is worse than Sonecha. Your foe is worse than your enemy. And he says, there's no one compared to the hatred that Ishmael had to, had to Yitzchak. It's a very deep envy, a very deep hatred. And to see that melting, literally melting, I read today, it was so beautiful, um, you know, the, 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 um, there was a conference that was just done. Was, again, I saw this, I think, uh, maybe in Arut Sheva, I'm not sure, could be, I saw it in Arut Sheva today, you can look it up. Um, they had a conference now, a two-day conference, in which the, the um, I think it was with, the, with, with, with maybe Bahrain as well, with, with people of influence in the Emirates and people of influence in Israel, we're having this this conference, and they had journalists and so on and so forth. And they were discussing the new the new Abraham Accords, and one of the Muslims uh, uh, reporters 
said what, what a very interesting idea. They said the earlier accords that were made between Egypt and, and Israel and between Jordan, he says this was a deal that was made by governments. Whatever, for, for an interest. The governments had a certain interest and, 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 they, and, they, and they made peace. But it, said it, it wasn't the peace of the people. He's saying the peace now, he says, is a peace of the people. Very interesting. The Emirate people, the people, the Arabs in the Gulf states are beginning to experience a genuine desire to do business and to interact and to be in a relationship with the Israelis. In other words, there's a true melting of the animosity and of the hatred. Talking about a hatred that was there for thousands of years is melting. Talk about Mashiach's power in the world. And again, what we're seeing now is just a little beginning. Imagine those other five states, probably Oman, uh, I don't know if Kuwait is one of them, but um, um, uh, Morocco, probably going to follow Saudi Arabia. Imagine that. And then once, um, I believe, that the, 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 the effects of the election in the United States of America next week, let it go the way I think God wants it to go. May it go that way. If Hashem wants it to go that way, it will go that way. Uh, if, 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 if the president wins re-election, in other words, those that are still holding out and trying to hold on to the old Middle East and try to hold on onto this uh, Palestinian narrative and all that, all that garbage, I think are only holding on to it because they're hoping that uh, the president uh, falls and, Bi and, and, and Biden goes into office and then he'll try to like resurrect uh, you know, the Iranian deal and all that stuff which is obviously lunacy. But in any case, but if, you know, once that happens, what you're going to see is unbelievable. What we are going to see is just incredible. So the, 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 for that to happen, Parshas Noach, which is Parshas Noach, is, is, the, is the, the teva, is that experience of that shalom. It says, the peace, the sukkah of peace was the teva. That's the teva. And that Friday Parshas Noach that was manifest in this world three times. In the year that we said that the Torah is in the world already fixing the world for 3,333 years. And this week's Parshas Lech Lecha is the third Torah portion. So number three is very powerful. We also know that Avram Avinu represents the number three. Because Avram Avinu comes onto the world right at the beginning of Elef Ashlishi on the third millennium. He's the be beginning of the lights of Torah. He's, he's, he represents the power of peace, the power of number three. So that's, that's the connection to Parshas Noach. Now, what's the story of Parshas Lech Lecha? So, last week I gave a shir on the Dvar Malchus of, of Lech Lecha, that the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke in 5752. And I pointed to something that I consider an absolute prophecy which we're seeing now, in which the Rebbe says like this. He says that, um, that when Hashem promised Avram Avinu the, the, the land of Israel in, in, um, in Parshas Lech Lecha by the covenant, Brisbane Absarim, the covenant, God promised Avram Avinu not just the land, the land of Israel to your children, but he tells him the land of 10 nations, Keni, Knizi, Kadmoini, all 10 nations. And then another and then the seven that we know, Aknani, Achiti, Amori, Aprizi, Achivi, Avusi, all the all the land of the seven the Hagir Goshi, so the seven nations. The first that he says, Keni, Knizi, Vikadmoini. 
We know that when, we land, we, when the Jews conquered the land of Israel, it was only the land of seven nations, not the land of ten. So the Rebbe says that today's days, when it says Lech Lecha, because he asked the question, you know, today that we already conquered Eretz Yisrael, we've already conquered the land, what could possibly be, be this commandment to us to go, to go and to go to the land of Israel, to initiate the possession? Because when Abraham, Avram, was told to go to the land of Israel, it was that, that he should initiate the Jewish presence in that land, so eventually it can become his. Or by Avram Avinu actually walking across the land, as some, according to some opinions, it actually was a display of ownership, and he became his already even you know, a couple of hundred years before the Jewish people conquered the land in a literal sense. So, um, but, but, but he says, good, if, if the Torah is supposed to direct us and inspire us, not just tell us historical facts, what could possibly be to, today the commandment to each and every one of us, go, 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 go to Israel, in what sense? Israel's ours already, it's already done. So the idea that he presents over there is that it's not done because the land of Israel was never really taken in its fullest. Because the land of Israel in its fullest is going to be only when it's a land of ten nations, not when it's a land of seven nations. And the land of the set, and it's not only that we're going to be added more, a greater land, meaning an expansive geographic location. What it really means is spiritually, when you add those three lands, the holiness of the land, the godliness of it will become so much more intense. The potency of the energy of the divine light, of the miraculous life force pulsating in the land of Israel, every inch of the land, is going to increase a, you know, a billion fold because we're adding the three and now the whole thing is complete. In addition to this, a beautiful idea that he says over there, we discussed it in earlier classes and other years, is the fact that the land of Israel, the soul of the land of Israel are its people. And the people of the land is Eretz Yisrael, the land of the Jewish people. So we need the Jewish people to be living in the land of Israel. So we know halachically that, 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 that there's a certain laws applying to the holiness of the land that only apply when all the Jewish people are living in Israel. I mean, you have to have all the, ten, all the 12 tribes. And that's why in the Second Temple there was a certain compromise in the holiness of Israel, certain laws that did not apply because the Jews were not fully there. You need all the Yidin living there. Okay, so that's a halacha. So the Rebbe says, but the real meaning from a halachic perspective, 12 tribes that are currently the Jewish people, we don't even know who the 12 tribes are. Beginning, some say, yeah, we're beginning to identify them. Okay, good, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not an expert on that. Uh, but when Mashiach will reveal who they are, so we have all the Jews living in the land of Israel, 12 tribes, everybody there, the land, is, the land, the holiness of the land will increase, especially when we have the full land. But now take it a step further, the Rebbe says, because we are, one of the prophecies in the days of the, of the, one of the promises we have in the days of the redemption is that all there will be the resurrection of the dead, so all the generations will come back. So we're actually going to have all the Jews of all the generations living in the land of Israel. And that's when, beginning with Abraham, with Avram Avinu, that's when the land of Israel is going to be in its fullest capacity, in its fullest holiness. And when that's going to happen, well. So, but then, here's the point that I wanted to talk about now. He says, um, this is very, very pertinent to our generation. Since we're already now holding after, he says, again, he says this in, in, in 1992. He said, since we're already now past all the end dates for the redemption, and my feast, it brings from his father-in-law that we've already done tshuva even. We've polished the buttons. 
which is, which is an idea that we've already completed even the tiniest little minute things. According to all signs, this generation is the last generation of the exile, the first generation of the redemption. So therefore, we have to actually prepare ourselves to go fulfill this mitzvah of taking possession of the land of Israel because we've never really had it. We've had the land, but we never really had it. And he says, why? Because take of me out because we're going to take the entire land of Israel, which means far greater than what Israel is now. And you see, Israel now is not even what it was in the days of King Solomon, King, King David. It was larger than that. Certain parts now we didn't have then, but large parts of the land of Israel, which was then included, Israel, was not, is not part of Israel today. So that's going to be part of Israel. But even more than that, even the parts that were never part of Israel, three lands, whatever the, the, the location of these lands is a discussion, what it is. It's uh, the lands of Edom and Ammon and Moab, where exactly that is. But, 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 but that's, again, that's a much greater in, uh, uh, um, portion. And what does it say? But he says, Vachitish here's the prophecy that I, that I think is so telling and why I'm so excited about these Abraham Accords, in addition to everything we spoke about earlier. The Chiddush that we're talking about now is that we are going to receive it in a in we're going to receive these lands in a pleasant manner and in a way of peace. In other words, it's not going to be a fight, and we're not going to have to wrestle it. We're not going to have to take it by force. We're not going to have to conquer it. Moshiach is not going to have to send in a military to, to take the land like we did in the days of Yeshua. It's going to be given in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a pleasant way, in a peaceful way. Why? So the Rebbe says the reason is because in that time there won't be any war anymore. So you can't say, well, there won't be a conflict. But then he adds more. Not only can say, okay, it won't be a conflict, but it was to kind of will be a forced peacefully kind of. People will feel compelled to give it by, you know, uh, and relinquish that land uh, unwillingly. He says, no, no, no. And here's the line. He says, The nations of the world on their own, they're going to give it over to the Jewish people out of their good volition. Now, let's stop for a moment. The Rebbe is saying this in 1992. Think about this just, just from three years ago. And the reason I'm saying three years ago, let's go, let's go back five years ago. Because once, you know, the current administration came in and started, <laughs> started, had a lot of chutzpah to stand up against the entire world's view on Israel and like completely, you know, shift the entire foreign policy. Nikki Haley, she was a real warrior fighting in the UN. So you think uh, these things had major effects. Whatever God is doing his... His at his end. I mean, God is doing everything, but particularly the fact that Iran became such a menacing threat to Saudi Arabia and all the Gulf states, in which, for whatever reason, they're, 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 they need Israel, in a sense, even more than Israel needs them. And because of this, they're open and they're changing. But the miracle of it, the miracle of it, that to see that, that millions and millions of Muslims are changing their attitude. It's not far-fetched to say that very soon they're just going to drop the whole idea of a two-state thing. They, they, they actually, it's interesting, they didn't put it into the accords, even though they were saying it, both of them, by the, by the, uh, when they spoke at the White House, the Bahraini foreign minister and the, uh, 
and the uh, guy from the Emirates, but they mentioned it. But again, it's not very high on their agenda. And as their friendships are going to build, and it seems like there is genuine deep friendship that is now going to start, it's very, very close. It's not far. I mean, it's, it's believable already from in, in, in our world that we can see that, at, 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 that as they are recognizing Abraham and as they are recognizing their, their lineage and the Jewish people's lineage and that there is a certain common family element over here and I have mine and you have yours, this is, this is big and that they're going to do it and that they might even add. He doesn't say they might. He says they will. And it's again, I'm still grappling. Like, who, where, which Arab country is going to give up huge pieces out of their own will, out of their own volition? The Rebbe says they're going to do it. He doesn't say maybe. He says they will. Why? Because Torah says so. That we're beginning to see. And that's exciting. That's amazing. Now, um, so interesting, I'd like to share with you a fa- an interesting Arachaim HaKadosh, Arachaim from the great uh, commentators on Chumash. So he speaks about God's promise to Avram Avinu regarding these lands. Keni, Knizi, Kadmoini, Chiti. I'm trying to share with you how exciting this is. So he says over here, um, where does he start? There's beautiful words, he says. How is it that people's eyes are literally plastered, that they don't see people that are people who have fallen into despair, people who don't see any future for Israel, okay? Now here, 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 see the difference of where we're standing today, in which we can already witness, we can already witness the miracle happening to a Jew who lived actually in the land of Israel amongst the Muslims. And at that time, it was very, very difficult. We're talking about 300 years ago. Suffered. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering. A lot of persecution. In the early days when people went, were in the land of Israel, they, they didn't have it easy. Very hard. But he says people are depressed and exiled. They feel like God has abandoned us and dropped us and forgotten about us. I mean, in Egypt, they thought so after 210 years. What do you expect over here? And when he was talking, it was 1,600 years in exile already. Now we're in over 1,900 years. So he says, there's a verse. How can anybody even fall into the spirit? The Torah is what keeps us alive. And there is a, there is a verse that says that Hashem sealed the covenant with Abraham, with Avram Avinu, that he's going to give to his children the ten nations. And that has never been fulfilled. So he says, of God, God's promise, this is God promising, God making a covenant. We can, put, we can bet on God, we can put our money on God. Until now we only found that God gave us the seven. This is the three of them that, 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 that were never given to us. Hear these words, and how do they say, the dried out bones, and he's talking in them, and I believe that today's days there are also so many dried out bones, so many Jews that are hardly breathing, so many Jews that are so semi-depressed or maybe deeply depressed. 
lacking the confidence, lacking the joy that it will be good so soon. We will be so happy so soon. We will experience such ecstasy, joy, such explosive joy that will never end. Singing and dancing that will go on for all of eternity. An explosion of happiness. The tired feet will dance. Our bodies will, 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 be, will, will, be, will be jumping up and down with, with, with explosive energy and joy. So he, he says, how do the, 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 the dried out bones that are, that are, that are, that are a, of the Tikvah Nachlaseinu feel so downtrodden, so that, 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 that our hopes have been crushed, because take a look, this exile is not ending. And he says, The oath of God is what contradicts their depression. That's what he's saying. The promise of God should refute that, that, that feeling of despair. And he, because he says, even the seven that, because God's, God's promise has never been fulfilled. And even the seven that we got, we didn't, we, we, we didn't really get it, that we've taken hold of it in a way that, it's, that we're not going to lose it because then we lost it. So it's a sign that we didn't really take possession of it yet. But then he continues. And he said, I also took to my heart, he's just a great tzaddik, drinking the Torah like with thirst. He takes it into his heart. He doesn't just read it coldly. Like, oh, read, go to shul, let's read the parasha. He's reading it and here's the comfort, here's the love, here's the passion, here's the, 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 the soul of it. And he said, I put into my heart, what, what's the reason of the verses? And I've seen that what does Hashem put? He puts keni, knizi, kadmoini. He puts the three nations first, even though they're going to give, the, 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 those three nations weren't, weren't, weren't given to us until the end of days. So he says, These are the Amon and Moavim and these three extra lands. It was never given to us. Only, only the latter seven. So he should have put those seven first at least and then put the three at the end because we're only going to get that at the very end. So here's what the Or Chaim says. Hear this. Rab Chaim ben Atar. This came from the hand of God. To awaken us. And to tell you. The same idea that I read to you from the Rebbe earlier. The main primary giving of the land that God promised Abraham 4,000 years ago. That great promise of God, the creator of heaven and earth and the universe and all of existence and me and you and even the creator of our depression. He didn't create it, but he allows for our, sadly, for the depression. So there's no place void of him. So even wherever you are, wherever one can find themselves in a darkness and a sadness and a brokenness, whatever it is, whatever that is, in that very space is the space of Hashem. That very God, his main giving that he promised us the land Huasida is the future one, not, not what he gave us. In other words, that promise, that promise is still unfulfilled. It's only when we will get all ten, then we will, then we will really have the land of Israel. And that's supposed to get us so excited because this is definitely going to happen. And please, please don't say what some people say. Oh yeah, by the year 6,000, do you think... I'm going to be alive when Mashiach will come. Do you think my children will be alive when Mashiach will come? No, 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 no. Now, 
It's happening. It's literally happening. We really, really need to take this seriously. It's really, really happening. You see it happening. In any case, but then he adds, uh, and the sign to it that Hashem gave is that Hashem, also from this week's parasha, because we also learned in this week's parasha, how Avram Avinu went and fought a war against the four kings. The four kings came to fight against the five kings, and Avram went out to defend the five kings to rescue his, his nephew. And he fights against the four and he conquers them. He, whatever they, he beats them. So he says that these four kings, he says, interesting, they're symbolic for all ten nations. How does four become ten? He says because the three of them, the first three that are mentioned, they represent the three lands of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, the three that are going to be added in the future. The fourth one, he's called Tidal, that's his name, Melech Goyim, the king of nations. Rashi says there's a place called Goyim because many different people lived in that place. From different, It was a melting pot, so it's called Goyim. Tidal, Melech, Goyim. Goy means na- nation. You know, some people take it as a derogatory term that I mean, you know that 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 that, uh, that a Jews used to call a Gentile um, goy. But maybe some people take it out of context and started using it in that way. But it shouldn't be. It's not goyim. A goy means a nation. Actually, one of the promises that God tells um, Yaakov Avino when he tells him. Um, wait for Avram. He says, "Avamoin Goyim, you're going to be the father of multitudes of of Goyim." But that you can say means nations. But to Yaakov Avinu, he says, "Goy Kahal Goyim, I will, I will, I will, I will create from you Goyim, and that, that's referring to tribes of Israel. So it's not derogatory. It means a nation. So um, when it says Tidol Melech Goyim." He says is referring to all the the other seven. You got three, and then you have the other seven. So Avram Avinu actually conquered them. I mean, symbolically, that that represented his his conquest of all the land, all of the ten. So what we are told over here is that this is a big deal, and this is happening, and this is huge. But what I would like to discuss a little bit is the idea that the Rebbe says over here that they are going to give it out of their own volition. They are going to give it happily. They're going to give it with a smile. Now, why is that so essential? Why is that so important? Why is that so essential? So in the, in the, in the talk the Rebbe gives, he says, because, because it's going to be Mashiach's days. In Mashiach's days, there's no more war. So, of course, they're going to give it out of volition. But in other places, even though he doesn't mention it there, but in other places it mentions another idea, which is very, very powerful, very, very important. And that is, in general, we see that the land of Israel, if God wanted this to be a Jewish land, then God could have made it initially a Jewish land. Israel always has a stain on it. It always had a stain on it. What was the stain? The stain was that it was um, stolen land. And it's interesting. It, it, why does God have to make himself problems? He's God. You wonder why. 
can't, why do you always have to make yourself a problem? Rashi tells us in the first Rashi in the Torah that the nations in the world are going to call and say about the Jewish people that you're thieves. You have stolen the land of the seven nations. And because of that reason, God has to alter the whole Torah to answer that claim that we took land. Because everybody knows Joshua, the, the, the Torah, the Bible tells this to us very openly that Yeshua comes in with the Jewish people and took possession and fought wars. So, you know, we're supposed to be the moral people, the people of ethics and morality, and here we have to deal with this accusation that we've taken land. Okay, God was the one who told us to do it, fine. But it still feels so uncomfortable. Why is it that God made us take a land? So Rashi says that God initially, when he gave the world, he gave it to them. But then God's intentions was, when he gave it to them, was that we should come and take it from them. That's a strange thing. Why give it to them? And then take it from them. Which leaves room for this argument. Now the answer has to be, is that since God is the creator of the heaven and earth, so even when he gives it something to somebody and he gives them ownership, that kind of ownership does not supersede, doesn't override God's ownership. God, see, when, when, when I own something and I sell it to you, the degree of my ownership that I had on it is now dismissed. It now dissolves. And you are the one who gets that ownership. As much as I owned it, if we made a lawful exchange of money or whatever it is in the way we purchase something, my ownership dissolves and your ownership takes, takes effect. And I don't continue owning it unless there was some kind of a stipulation, but other than I don't have any ownership on it afterwards because now it's yours. That is when um, a human being owns something. When God owns something, he doesn't own it because he purchased it. God doesn't own the world because he purchased it. That we can say that someone else's purchase is overrides you know, and, and dismisses God's ownership. God owns it because he created it from nothing. So his ownership runs much deeper than any other ownership. And the truth is that God's ownership is an ownership that touches, he owns it on a molecular level or even deeper than that. He owns it on the essence even before you, like, on the, and it's at its very core, from its very inception of existence. God owns it at, at its existence because he's responsible for its existence, especially according to the Hasidic idea, which today is, can be substantiated scientifically as well, is that the creation is, a, creation is a perpetual event. It's continuously happening. If God ceased to create something, it ceased to exist entirely. So how can someone own it over, over God when God says, okay, it's yours? Here, you're responsible for it. And then it doesn't exist anymore because if God pulls out, it doesn't exist. The only reason something is is because God has invested in it. So his ownership of it is at its very, very nucleus. It's its very, very essence. And therefore, even when he gives it to nations to live in it and take possession of it and work it and develop it, and it, he still has an overriding ownership on it. And therefore, at and at a given moment, God took it from them and he gave it to the Jewish people. That's the truth. And that's why God tells us the story of creation so that we should unapologetically and without any shame tell the world that God's will is that the land of Israel, 
He lets everybody have all that. He lets you make your golf courses. He lets you make your casinos. He lets you have your, your, your stadiums. He lets you have your restaurants and your parties and your yachts. And you're on all the oceans and on all the seas and on all the countries and in all the... Have a good time. Have national parks. Have everything you want all over and enjoy life. God says, one piece of real estate is mine and I give that to the Jewish people. Finished. That's mine. But the question still remains, why does God have to do it in a way that's so murky? That involves this, 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 this. And as we know, you know, till today, it's not, you know, when, when it says that the nations had complaints, the, the sages tell us stories that they complained that in the days of Alexander the Great, you already had those accusations pointing fingers to, against the Jewish people. And now it's in the year 2020, and we're still dealing with the same, the same accusations. You got the BDS, and you have all this because it's, you know, the world feels justified. That Israel is the is the is the thief. The Jewish people are the the the, the worst of the worst for, for, for what they do to the poor Palestinian people. So that is a, a a a so you wonder why does God have to do that? And the answer is, strangely, God has no pleasure in a Jew, in a Jewish land that it was always a Jewish land. The pleasure that keeps God attached, see, the land of Israel is not just a land. The land of Israel is the place where heaven and earth meet. The land of Israel is the place through where God's interest in all of the world is manifest. Through Israel, it says, in the, there's a verse that says, The eyes of God are in the land. So the question is, God's eyes are over the whole world. He, 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 it says he, he seeks the well, the well, the well, without him nothing goes. And the answer the sages say, God, is the, God seeks out the welfare of Israel, and from Israel and through Israel, he already directs the affairs of the entire world. His eyes are on the land. That means the apple of God's eye is in Israel. So Israel is not just a land. Israel is the place where heaven and earth meet. And why is the date, why is the world going to be such so prosperous in the time of the redemption? Why is there going to be such infinite blessing? By the way, it's also something important to know, just like we spoke before, how the land of Israel has not really how the Jewish people in the land of Israel is not really manifested as Israel and as, as the greatness. Until Mashiach, we have to realize that that's the rest of the world. The world hasn't begun to experience life yet. I'm talking about everybody. We haven't yet begun. We, have only, we haven't even scratched the surface of the potential blessing, pleasure, enjoyment, delight, and experience that this world will have to offer. The blessings that are going to come pouring forth momentarily once the temple is built and God's presence openly returns to Jerusalem and His light uh, manifests in the world, the, wor the, 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 the pleasure, the delight, the happiness, the joy, the peace, the prosperity is going to be so exponential, exponential. You know, someone shared with me, someone called me to tell me this. There, there, this is a person that loves dancing and this is an individual who told me that, and you see, it's amazing. He says there's a certain dance that is picking up now. I see, you see Moshiach, it's incredible. There's a certain dance that is now suddenly exploding. It's the last half a year. It started around Corona time. Where it's exploding across continents. Continents. Is a song that was made in South Africa. And it's made in, in a language, I think, in African. And it's a song called Jerusalemah. And what is the song all about? How my heart, how, how, how like nothing can stop me from my connection to Jerusalem and take me home. I don't belong here. I belong in Jerusalem. And, I, 
And people have taken to this song across the entire world. And people are dancing to the words Jerusalem. So you got to wonder, like, what in the world? There's no other countries. There's no other places. There's, no, there's nothing else to dance about. What's with Paris? What's with London? What's with New York City? What's with Seattle? What's with, uh, what is it uh, over there, Louisiana? No, uh, no. Whatever it's called, I forgot. Um, no, the, 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 the capital of jazz. No, I've up my head right now. Um, what's with all these countries? What's with all these cities? Major beautiful cities. What's with Jerusalem? The world is beginning to sense. The energy will come from Jerusalem and only from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. People are dancing. All across the world. Of all races. It's in India. It's in, literally, people all over are dancing to Jerusalem. That's the heart. That's where the pulse of humanity and the pulse... Why? Because Jerusalem is the place where God, the source of life, will reveal himself very, very soon from that mountaintop. Now, since that's what Israel is all about, now, why would God bless that hilltop and consequently the entire world? What does God get from it? What's Hashem's pleasure out of it? What does God have from this? And the answer is, yeah, God also gets something out of it. What does he get out of it? God's pleasure is the transformation of darkness to light. That's what he's interested in. When dark stuff converts to, 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 to light, that's what is thrilling, delighting, and enjoyable to God. He loves it when a dark entity recognizes it. It is for that reason, and that in general, either through an enlightenment of humans or even in objects, things that once belonged to the unholy side, or as they call it, the dark side, and it's then converted to holiness, that's the pleasure. And that's the, you know, if you, once you know this idea, you can, life and history make sense, or else nothing makes sense. If you believe in God and you wonder how in the world did God create a world with so much struggle and so much pain and so much darkness and so much tears and so much aches and so much suffering and so much depression and so much, why? From an infinite good God, how can it possibly be? And the answer is, we have to say that the goodness in the end will, out, will outweigh and will bring that all the suffering was worth it. It was all, but what is, what is the pleasure itself? When a dark place becomes illuminated, when a broken heart becomes whole again, when a pain is transformed, when the entire world dances Jerusalem. That is Hashem's pleasure, when darkness turns to light. And that is, and since Israel is the root of that, Israel had to be a dark place first. The sages tell us that the land of Egypt, where the Jews were enslaved, and the land, of the, the land of the seven nations where the Jews came into was the most corrupt of all corrupted. The, 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 the people living in those lands lived lifestyles that were so abhorrent and so despicable, so dark, so, so, uh, so immoral. And the Jews had to go into that immorality, conquer it, convert it, and turn it into a holy land, into the land of Israel. And only that conversion is what makes it, what makes it att attractive to Hashem. Makes it attractive to God. Oops. 
Okay, thank God we caught that. I don't know why it went off suddenly. Gotta, I got to watch it. Sometimes I close. <laughs> Since the COVID days, there's no live audience over here. So I'm talking for an empty room. So I close my eyes sometimes and don't even realize what's happening on the camera. Okay, so I'm glad you're back. Camera's back. People are back. We can continue talking. So um, what was I saying? But I lost my thought. Oh, so the Talmud tells us an interesting thing. The Talmud says, It's one of the fascinating passages in the Talmud. The Talmud is talking about um, the reciting of the Shema. We say Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad. So in the recitation of Shema, the, the discussion over there is if we say Baruch Shem Kavod Malchus. After we say Hero Israel, God is one, there is another verse that we say, Blessed is, blessed is the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. Baruch Shem Kavod Malchus. Blessed is his name. So the sages say that, you know, if you look in, 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 in Chumash itself, in Pashas Ve'ezchanan, in Deuteronomy, in the second portion, um, it doesn't say the that verse it goes straight from hero israel god is one god is our god god is one it goes to you should love god your god with all your heart and all your soul and all your might it doesn't say blessed is his name of his glorious kingdom so where does how does that come in so the talmud says the way it was like this was when jacob yaakov called his children together and he wanted to bless them he said to them um he said to his children um, oh, so what happened was he, no, he wanted to reveal to them the end of days. That's what it was. He wanted to reveal, he says, he coughed to gather together the end of uh, Pashas Vayechi and the end of Genesis. So it says over there that he tells his children, gather together and I will reveal to you what's going to happen in the end of days. God did not want him to reveal the end of days. So the, 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 the divine spirit that rested upon him left him. So he, he obviously... <laughs> He, he, he felt that and he knew that he was in the blank. He, he didn't have it anymore. There was no Wi-Fi. Off. So he thought that maybe it's because one of his sons are not worthy for it. And what intensified his fear is he said, just like my father's, Abraham, uh, well, not all of his children were the way they should be. Isaac was a saintly person, but Yishmael still needed some, some therapy until he would work things out. Thank God, as we're seeing already, Yishmael, as we said, rehabilitated. But at that time, Yishmael was a troublemaker. And the same was Esav. Um, Isaac had a son, Yitzchak had a son, Esav, and, and not all of his children. Again, Esav was a wicked person. And again, as we spoke of many times, Esav is going to do tshuva, and he's doing tshuva already, as we see. But um, that's the... Uh, so Yaakov was afraid that maybe he, him, as being the third of the fathers, is also going to have some children that are not... that are the kosher ones and the non-kosher ones. He was afraid. So he said, maybe there's one of you whose heart is not with me. You don't... You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not within the unity. So the brothers said to him, the, the sons, his sons, all 12 sons, said to Yaakov, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, God is our God. Hashem Achad, God is one. We don't have any idol worship in our hearts. We're not believing in any other forces. We are completely with you in your unity. When Yaakov heard them say that, he said, Baruch Shem Kavod Machus, Blessed is the name of His glorious kingdom forever. 
So Yaakov's response to the first recitation of Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Yaakov's response was Baruch Shem. And that's why we add it. But then the Talmud says that, the, that the, but we know we don't add it regularly. We add it very lowly. We say it in a whisper. We don't say it loud. So why don't we say it loud? So they say because the rabbis, when they were instituting the, the order of the prayers, had a dilemma. Because Moshe and Moses didn't say it. In Chumash, when Moses gave, gave us a Torah, he says, Shema Yisrael v'ahavta, he doesn't say that verse, Baruch Shem. But Yaakov did say it. So they didn't know what to do, to say it or not to say it. They didn't want to offend Moshe by adding what Moshe didn't say, but they didn't want to omit it, something so special that Yaakov said. So, so the, that's why they instituted to say it quietly. So the sages give an in interesting analogy to it. Where you have this dilemma, yes and no, and then you do it quietly. So the sages said like this, there is this princess who's, you know, in her house, in her palace, and suddenly she's sniffing and she captures the scent of the Gemara says, Tzike Kedera, the bottom of the pot. Let's for a moment understand something. The princess is privy to all gourmet food all her life. Every meal is a feast fit for kings, right? She's in, she's in the royal family. So she has all the good sensations of gourmet food, of every type of experience that literally make your, ma your mouth, you know, your, your taste buds dance. That's her experience on a daily experience. But yet, you know, there is palace food, there is sophisticated food. And then there is, you know, sometimes the garlic and the onions that might not be so dominating in, in royal and the finest of foods. But it's the snack of the simple people. You know, like you have a smell of popcorn. Like when you want, when you smell popcorn, and the only thing that will do it for you is popcorn. Don't give me, you know, sophisticated foods when all I want is a little popcorn. Um, in any case, it says that her servants, I mean, I'm dr dramatizing the story a little bit, you get it, but the idea that, that it conveys is, you know, you know, the, the servants at night, she, she's in her bedroom, she's, she's trying to sleep. Meanwhile, you know, after the day's work, the servants are sitting together and they're drinking beer and they're having a little party. And they're cooking french fries, fried potatoes. And as they're cooking up these fried potatoes, you know, at the bottom of the pot, some of these, the burnt ones, the ones that get really crispy, and, and that's creating a smell, you know, a, a fragrance, a smell of, 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 bake, of, of good fried French fries, burnt ones, I don't mean burnt, burnt, but like crunchy ones at the bottom. She smells it. She wants it. She can't sleep. She's craving. But she has a problem because, you know, it, it's not befitting. It's not aristocratic. It's not, you know, for, for her to, to eat, you know, the party food that's being eaten over there just totally it will, it will, it will, it will completely be of an embarrassment to her, for, for, you know, for, for partaking in their party. On the other hand, she can't get over her, 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 her craving, you know. Anything else you'll bring her from the royal kitchen won't work. She needs that. So what they did was, I mean, she had some person working and they went secretly and they brought it there, you know. They, somehow they, they said they're taking it for themselves or whatever it was and they, from the back door they brought it to her. And she enjoyed it. 
So the Talmud simply is saying that since, you know, the dilemma, you know, to, to have it or not to have it, it was the sages were having, should say it or not say it. But you know what? It's a figure. <laughs> Way too much of an over-dramatized example for a simple dilemma that the sages had. To say it or not to say it. They're smelling these burnt potatoes and they want it, but they can't because Moshe didn't say it. So actually they said, let's say it quietly. I mean, you couldn't find any other example of another dilemma than you have to say that there is a smell of these, of these, of these burnt fries. There's got to be some deep secret over here. So according to mysticism, according to Hasidus, we understand what this means. You see, the princess that we're talking about over here is the divine presence that comes down into the world, the Shekhinah. What makes God because that's called, um, uh, the Shekhinah is called uh, uh, the daughter of the king. The king, the king is Chachma, Keser, and, and Bas Melech is, 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 uh, is Malchus. Malchus is the Shekhinah. And the Shekhinah is the life force of all of creation. And it's explaining, like, the, what, what, what's her interest in this world? You know, does she is she is she enjoying the sublime dishes that are cooked by her by the most sublime beings in the highest realms of of existence? Yeah, maybe. You know, the song of the angels and the pure the pure worship and service of the deepest beings who or the highest tzaddik tzaddikim righteous who have the highest levels of love and purest intentions and desire. That's very beautiful, but that does not catch. The, the interests of the Shekhinah, she gets a craving for the burnt potatoes at the bottom of the pot. You know what that is? Those are the sparks of holiness that are buried in the darkest of things. See, it's metaphoric. Let's understand the idea. That's the part of where me and you and all of us struggle with dark things in our life. Because in these dark elements, these dark cravings and wants and, and appetites and unholy things, that we all have, whether it's greed, whether it's envy, whether it's lusts, whether it's dark stuff that, that we're in. In, hidden in all this human muck and gook is deep treasures of powerful deposits. Why does it have energy? Why is there such an energy in a craving? Why is there such energy in an addiction, in a dark addiction? Why is it? Because it has a spark of the divine that's buried there, that comes from a very, very high spiritual place, from a very high serious spiritual source. In Kabbalah, it's referred to the, the sparks from the world of Tohu. And that's what the Shekhinah smells, that's what catches her, and that's what she desires. And it's only when we redeem those sparks and we convert them and we transform them to holiness, that's what keeps the entire attention of God down in this world, or else he has no, no real sensation to keep him attracted, to keep him grounded, to keep him anchored to creation. So it's the feeding of these sparks of holiness, and that is when we take dark stuff and convert them to holiness. When we take a dark heart, when you feel that your heart is dark, filled with, with dark stuff, filled with demons, filled with desires that are non-kosher, all kind of a heart that craves for who knows what. And you can etch out to say, to, 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 to experience a longing for God. You can sing for God. You can go outside on your porch and watch sunrise or sunset and have a moment when you admire God's creation. 
and you say something and you and you and you and you and you let your heart sing a little Tashem and you say to yourself, My heart is so dark, it's so ugly, it's so despicable, it's so horrible, I you know what's going on all the other time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the burnt French fry. And the sensation, if it's dipped in ketchup or whatever, some other kind of a sauce sauce. That which which we can understand represents other intense, harsh things in, in your life. It, when these things go up, it creates such unbelievable sensation and, and, and delight by Hashem that is indescribable. It's, it's infinite. And that's what keeps God's attention to the world. And that's the reason why the land of the seven nations had to first be very dark, because only in their conversion and the conquest of them. And the land of the seven nations also refers to each and every one of our own hearts, because every one of our hearts is Eretz Yisrael. It's supposed to be the land of Israel. But first, before we can make it into the land of Israel, God intentionally created our hearts, which has seven emotions that are all over the place, that could be as corrupt as the seven land. Don't feel bad that you have a heart that, you know, say, I don't have a Jewish heart. I don't have an Eretz Yisrael. No, no, yeah, that's the way it was. But the, the pleasure that Hashem has is dafka from those struggles and from the transformation of that heart. So that's the idea. But here's the thing. In the transformation of darkness and light, of us taking, and on the broader sense, I was talking now on a psychological human experience, but on a broader sense, it means that Jews, the land of Israel, to convert the land of Israel, doesn't only apply to the land of Israel, because ultimately we, it's the, the idea is that the land, the land of Israel is a land of seven nations. These seven nations are the root of 70 nations. So when, we, when the Jewish people go into the rest of the world during the time of exile and convert those lands as well, and take dark, take, take entities of this world and convert it to holiness, not only inside the Jewish experience, but expanding into the non-Jewish experience. Bringing faith, bringing kindness, bringing generosity, bringing acts of goodness, bringing a caring for God, and so on and so forth. A praise of Hashem, a hallelujah for God from all the nations. Hallelujah, Hashem, kol goyim. When the, all the nations of the world sing God, Shabbat they praise Him. Kol all the nations upon nations are praising and singing God. Everybody's dancing Jerusalem. That's the potatoes. That's the transformation. That's the joy of the of these sparks of tow. Again, I'm not saying the dance of Jerusalem is the fault, is the complete tikkun. I'm just using that as a as a little a little a little key to 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 the to what is to what is beginning to happen and what is going to happen on the deepest, most beautiful way that we can't even imagine. So in that transformation, there are two ways. One way is that we take it, we take those sparks, and the other way is that the nations give it. When the nations give it, and we're not taking it, then the spark that's being released, not only is it nicer that they're giving it instead of we're taking it, but deeper than that, there's nothing of the spark that's left over. When we're taking, then we're grabbing something, you know, a little bit is stuck to the bottom. But when they give it, then they're giving even the bottom of the spark. Or we can say they're giving the most hidden of sparks when it's coming from within their own volition. The transformation is so thorough, so deep, so, so deep. It's a whole different story when they're giving it versus we're taking it. And this is, I heard this, and um, this whole idea came into my head from a voice note that I heard just the other week that someone sent me, and I contacted actually the rabbi who made that voice note, Rabbi Shlomo Majeski from Crown Heights, a teacher of Hasidus. 
he was talking uh, about this, and I got excited about it because we explained it. Then I asked him where it is, and he showed me where the source of it. It's Sefer Mamarim Tafresh Pei from the Rebbe Rashab, fifth Chabad Rebbe. This is the last year of his teachings. He passed away in that year. And in, in a mimer called Nesatel Reyecho Nesle Hisnosis, which is on a verse in Tehillim, I think, Perek Samach. So over there it says, uh, it, he has a discussion, and it's a long discourse, but this that I am speaking about right now, that when the sparks are being given, it's deeper and stronger rectification than when we're taking it, is what is discussed in the first chapter over there. And he gives a few illustrations for this. A few illustrations for the idea that when, when sparks are released with the will of those that are giving it, that it's much deeper. So one of the things he brings, for instance, is Avram Avinu. That Avram Avinu um, wanted so much that the people who ate by him, when Avram, it's mainly, this, this, it says already this, uh, this week, no, it's next week's parasha. In next week's parasha, we have the story where Avram had guest, Avram Avinu, and then later, um, it says in the end of the parsha that he built, again, parsha's Vayera, that he, that he planted a tree, and he called on the name of God, and the sages say that Avram had a hotel, free food, everybody came there, and he would take care of everybody, but there only was one condition, that they had to, they had to bless God when they were finished. And he literally like imposed it upon them, that if they didn't, they were in trouble, because then they had to pay the bill, and the bill was an enormous bill, because this was an oasis in the middle of the desert. So it's like gasoline, when you're in the middle of nowhere, you know, you're paying six, six, six bucks a, a gallon. Um, so Avram Avinu uh, would charge an enormous price because out here in the desert, that's how much it cost. And then the people had to, had to bless God. And so what, what does Avram gain if these people who are, you know, they're, they're idolaters, they're pagans, they're going to bless God, so what is? No, 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 if they bless God and if it's from their will, they, they, they want to do it, okay, maybe it's some pressure, but the fact that they want to do it, they're giving their spark. It has to come from them. That's one example he gives. Another fascinating, interesting example he gives is that Yosef came down to Egypt. And when Yosef came down to Egypt, it says that Yosef was feeding all the Egyptians. He was feeding them. Now we know that the Jewish people going down to Egypt was an extraction of sparks of holiness. Actually, most of the sparks of holiness that we needed to rectify were buried in Egypt. There's 288 sparks altogether. Oh, you wonder why it's taking so long, because these 288 sparks later get splintered into billions and billions of sparks. But the initial, the number is 288. From the 288 initial sparks that collapsed, um, 202 were, are, were entrenched in Egypt. So Egypt, so when the Jews went to Egypt, they elevated it, and that's the idea of Megam Erev Rav, and also a mixture of multitudes came up with the Jewish people when we went out of Egypt. The word Rav equals 202. So we took out the sparks. But there were two phases in taking out the sparks. One of them was an extraction that came in the end, when all the Jewish people took out all the wealth of Egypt. But that wasn't so much that, we, that, 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 that it was given. There too, it was also given to us. We had to ask, and God gave our grace in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Egyptians had to give it to them. So there too, there was a notion of them giving it. But the main giving was, not then, but much earlier. When Joseph came to Egypt, it says that Joseph was the guy who had access to all the grain. There was a famine in the land. And Yosef was the only one who had the key to the, you know, he, he was the one who had, uh, you know, and to get any food you needed to. So it says that the people came and they first purchased, and they brought all their money, and then they went and they sold all their cattle, and then they went and they sold their, all their possessions until they had to sell themselves to Yosef. And it says over there that Yosef gathered all the money 
And we know that there's a great spiritual meaning to this. He took all the sparks. Money can also mean passion. Kesef. All longing. He, he managed to take all the longings and elevate it. Everything. But why did God do it? They brought it out of their own volition. They wanted food. Yeah, God set it up that they have to want. But they brought it. And he says the reason they have to bring it because you know what? If, you're, if I'm sending the police in to take your money, he said, you'll only bring me what? What the police can find. You know? But then you might have some hidden stashes hiding you know, in a place where, you can't, where I can't get to it. But if you're bringing it out of your own volition and you really want the food, you're going to take your empty out your bank account, you're emptying out your piggy bank, everything. You're bringing it all because you're bringing it. So that's what he says. It had to, the fact that they were the ones bringing it means that they brought out everything from the very deepest hidden place. And that's why it's so important and vital. And he gives another example to that. He says, when Moses went up to heaven, it says, after the giving of the Torah, um, all the angels gave him gifts after he fought. First, the angels wanted to, they wanted to, 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 to destroy him completely, to shred him to pieces. Because they were upset that he was going to take the Torah down to, to land. In the end, he won the debate, and then they all were appeased, and everybody gave him. They realized that it's good for the angels, too, that the Jews down here have the Torah. Fine. So they wanted to appease him, and they all gave him presents. So it says, even the angel of death gave him a present. What did he give him? He gave him the secret of the Ketores of the incense, of the spices. And he says that if you use that that's, that, that's a protection against the angel of death, the Ketaris. So the explanation, the deep mystical explanation behind the angel of death giving him, so it says that the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the spices there are 11 different spices. And the reason there are 11 is because the number 11 is associated with the side of darkness. In holiness, there's only 10. Because really, all of existence is divided by the number 10. Everything is 10. So, and therefore, there's only 10. But why is there in the unholy 11? Because in addition to the 10, which make up this, the substance of all phenomenon, there is the energy of it, the, the godly power that's in it. So in holiness, that godly power is one with the object, with the entity. So therefore you don't count it separately, it's just ten. But in the unholy, since he doesn't mix with them, so there is eleven. It's the power of the divine plus the ten, but therefore the kingdom of the unholy is the kingdom of eleven. Um, now, there is a certain basic energy, he says, that... God will never take away from the unholy side. Because, you know, he allocates stuff that take, take, take extra can be taken away from them. But what is their basic lifeline doesn't take away. When the angel of death gave Moshe Rabbeinu this gift, he says what it spiritually means that he's actually giving his very lifeline. He's giving the number 11. He's giving its very, its very, its very essential energy up to holiness. That kind of transformation is the highest transformation. For that reason, he says, here's this, why it's important that Rashi says in the beginning of the Torah that Hashem says that the nations, that the God wants the Jewish people to have an answer to the nations. That when, when the nations have a complaint and say that we stole the land, God wants us to answer them. What should we say? God created the world and he first gave it to the nations and then he took it from them and he gave it to us. 
so that they have a satisfying answer. And for this, God changed the whole order of the Torah. So he asked a simple question. I mean, if God is behind you and God is giving you the land and he's telling you it's yours, so, you know, what do you care about anybody complaining? Who cares what anybody says? Hashem gave you the land, gave you the land. What do you have to go now debate anybody? I mean, I mean obviously, we're, we're, it's not a time of exile where God is hidden. When God is open and he gave you the land, so if God is now backing you, who's going to start up with you? So what do you care? Someone has complaints, let them go jump in the lake. What do you care? What do you care of the complaints of the nations? Why is that important? Why do you have to satisfy that? Why do you have to answer it? So he explains that the consent of the nations that the Jews should have the land, their open consent, that's part of this idea that they have to agree to the, to, to the sublimation. They have to agree to it. It has to be justified. So it is important what the world view is, what the opinion is. And therefore, it's so amazing to see now that out of their own volition, that's what going back all the way to the beginning, that there is a now a, a, a change in the heart of man. It hasn't maybe reached Europe yet. It hasn't reached yet places that are still deeply in, impacted by BDS and all this and the whole left in the United States of America and college campus and all that. It hasn't yet, but huge, huge parts of this country, the United States, have a change. It's so important to millions of people in the United States of America that Israel should be a strong country. It really is. In words, they feel just, they're justifying the fact that the Jews should be in the land of Israel. They feel it's a deep, passionate issue. It's actually a more, in a sense, it was more passionate. <laughs> the president says that he gets more thank you and more recognition from the evangelicals than he gets from the Jews. The Jews are the hard, toughest cookie to, 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 to break. The evangelicals appreciate it, but, but that itself that they appreciate it, that's the fulfillment of Rashi. The nations will agree, and that's, that's part of the purification. That's part of the elevation. That's assisting in the elevation, as we said. And now that you have all these, all these countries changing, flipping over their attitudes, it's part of this consent. This is awesome. This is the deepest bearer, the deepest purification, the deepest elevation, and the satisfaction that it's causing above is boundless and infinite. And that's Mashiach. So, with all of that said, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna continue this class into a whole long discussion all about circumcision and the relationship of circumcision to, to the giving of the land and the deeper meaning of circumcision, but I guess this became a whole class onto its own. And um, so we're gonna leave it over here and maybe uh, maybe we'll continue in, in the second part of the discussion that I wanted another day. Meanwhile, I think it's time for all of us to de-stress, to focus on the positive and on the good, and to be confident that good things are happening. The main thing is for us to be happy and to realize that we've achieved unbelievable things and that the world is coming together in an unbelievable way, and the good in the world is ready to explode. The darkness is really just paper thin, and it's gonna be blown away without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna celebrate big, big, big Be'ezrat Hashem. So may we see this already now, and the parsha of Lech Lecha, where God commands Abraham, go to the Land, go to the land of Israel should really be God's commandment right now that we should hear the massive greatest 
voice telling each and every one of us, time for us to return to Eretz Yisrael, to the Holy Land, to celebrate with the Third Temple. May we see that now.